Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world, with the MD, Dr. DJ Verrett. Thank you for joining us for Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett. Today we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Ken Adams. Ken is a chief medical officer with United Healthcare, but has quite the story of a non clinical medical career. Stay tuned, we'll be right back with Ken after this. Here's today's STEM tip. Don't throw out that old plastic bottle. Repurpose it by turning it into an awesome terrarium. Just fill it with sand, pebbles, soil, and your favorite plant. It'll grow sealed right in its own ecosystem. Learn more at She Can STEM. A message from the Ad Council. Welcome back to Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett, and today I have the distinct pleasure of being joined by Dr. Ken Adams. Ken is currently one of the chief medical officers with United Healthcare, but has quite the story in non-clinical medicine that we're going to be talking to him about today. Ken, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here today. So I know you and I have talked about your past, but uh, and like I said, when I when you first emailed me with kind of your background, I said, "Wow, that is very interesting." So if you could kind of briefly fill our listeners in on your background, where you came from, both educationally and then kind of through the non-clinical pathway you decided to take. Sure. So I think like a lot of physicians here in Texas, um, I went to a Texas university. I went to UT Austin and uh, finished up there in 93 and went to medical school at UT Southwestern. Um, I had an Asian mom, so people ask, you know, when did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? And I don't have an answer for that because I was just told I was going to be a doctor and that was what I did. Uh, <laughs> and um, so got out into the, uh, got out of residency in 2001. And back then, I think there was still kind of a push to go out and, and do your own thing and, and maybe join a, a group, but an independent group. And Given the fact that I do physical medicine rehabilitation, there weren't a whole lot of large, um, you know, uh, owned entities uh, at the time. But I, I finished up and uh, started my own practice, and within a short period of time, had um, accumulated a number of rehab contracts for facilities here in the North Texas area. And um, the organization that we contracted with, Rehab Care Group said, uh, you know, you have, uh, you know, built your business so quickly. Uh, and so many of our physicians are around the United States who have been doing this for years are struggling. Would you be willing to go around and do some consulting with these physicians and help them grow their practice? And it seemed like an, an interesting opportunity. I, I still, um, you know, stayed on the call list and, and was, was doing direct patient care. Uh, and after a year or so of doing that, my partners back home said, you know, Ken, it, it, we, we kind of feel like you're not doing your fair share. Um, you know, are you going to do clinical medicine? Or are you going to be an administrator? And the organization at the time that I was working with Rehab Care Group created a chief medical officer position for me. So overnight, I went from managing a, a small single specialty multi-physician group with I believe at the time we had eight providers, to um, 117 physicians across 48 states in Puerto Rico, 
with 150 acute inpatient rehabs, I'm sorry, no, 120 acute inpatient rehabs, 50 LTACs, 1,200 skilled nursing facility contracts, and a number of home health care and um, hospice organizations. So it was pretty dramatic increase uh, overnight. And um, that was, that was uh, a, a difficult uh, leap. And I felt like I was drinking from the fire hose on a daily basis for the first year or two there. Well, Ken, let me actually, let me interrupt you right there. Cause there are sure. a couple of things I'd like to kind of expand upon. So first you mentioned that you were kind of singled out because of what you had done to grow your practice. Uh-huh. What do you think was the key that you identified and, and did in that practice to make it so successful initially? I would say that I put together, with the help of rehab care, um, a, a relatively decent kind of uh, pamphlet of information of the services that we offered and what, what we were willing to take off the, the shoulders of the administration. So I think they, they stressed a lot about having medical directors for their inpatient rehab facilities, um, they were really focused on, at the time, it was called the 75-25 rule. Um, and, and, you know, kind of these administrative things that were requirements from CMS that their medical director occasionally would fill them in on, and they just didn't feel like the, the, the information they was getting, that they were getting was consistent, and they were worried from a compliance standpoint that they weren't in compliance. And so we just had a really convincing story that that was all stuff that we could manage and that I personally would, would take responsibility for that and that um, we would hire medical directors who were competent folks, but at the end of the day, they reported to me and I would report back to the, the CEOs of these hospitals. And it was a, it was a good story. And the, the, the CEOs you know, generally didn't have any problem bringing us on board or having us replace the, the medical director that was already there, or in some cases, asking us to hire the medical director that was, that was already there. So when you look at that business model, it sounds like you went out, you found a pinch point for your target market, you found a way to fix it, and then you marketed that fix. Is that accurate? That, that is, that's very accurate. And I think maybe the, the, the difference between what I did and the other medical directors, I really actually enjoyed talking to administration. Um, I didn't have that kind of view that a lot of people do that, you know, administration's the enemy and uh, we can't collaborate with them because they're always trying to screw us. Um, and generally, you know, went out and, and had great conversations, took these CEOs out to dinner and, and treated it like a sales position, essentially, um, which, which I think is, is a little bit different. I mean, I, I work with physicians even now today, uh, and we were talking about it the other day. We were, we were trying to get some of our CMOs across the country to... Um, essentially sell one of the services that we have to hospital CEOs and almost uniformly across the board, the CEOs were like, I mean, the CMOs were saying, we're not salespeople, we're clinicians, like go get a salesperson to go do this. And I, on the other hand said, that's exactly what we're supposed to do as CMOs is, is build those relationships with hospital systems and, and hospital CEOs. So I think it's just a different in per- difference in perception as to, you know, what our roles and responsibilities are. 
Well, it sounds like it's not not even so much sales, but maybe something taken from the sales environment of relationship building in a broader perspective. Absolutely, you're right. I mean, from from the the strictest sense, I'm I'm not sales. I'm I'm you know relationship building so that someone else can get in there and get a contract signed. So now you you mentioned going from the small group to CMO at a large entity, and and drinking from the fire hose. For physicians out there that may be looking to transition to more of a CMO role, what kind of advice would you give them for training or education or, or what should they do to kind of prepare for that transition you experience? So when I made that transition, um, that was kind of a, a unique period in time. Uh, MBAs were not that, um, you know, th- there were not that many physicians with MBAs. And if I was to do it all over again now, uh, if I was, you know, leaving the bedside and, and going into management, I would probably encourage someone to go get an MBA. Because when I showed up as the CMO for Rehab Care Group and got stuck in a boardroom with our quarterly board meetings with our board of directors, I was lost. I really was. I was looking at, you know, balance sheets and profit and loss sheets, didn't understand double entry accounting. Uh, and and had no real clue about how the business actually ran. And the first meeting that I sat in, I was fortunate to be seated next to the CFO for the organization. And it was painfully obvious that I was clueless. And he pulled me aside afterwards and said, hey, Ken, you know what? Friday afternoons, I have a little block time. And every Friday for the next couple of months, let's get together. And I will bring you up to speed on what it's like uh, to, to run uh, a business. And he did. And it was awesome because I actually, uh, I had to fly to, to St. Louis every week. I'd leave uh, generally Sunday night and, and come back Friday afternoon. And he would spend the last bit of uh, Fridays with me and um, basically kind of get me up to speed. So over six to maybe eight months or so, I kind of had my little mini MBA on what it takes to run a billion dollar plus organization. What a unique opportunity. That's, that's not available everywhere. It's not. And it was, it was really interesting. After I, I got through that, there were, there were multiple times in my career where I've had um, kind of blocks of time between jobs. And in each one of those kind of down moments, I thought, oh my gosh, should I go back and get an MBA? Should, you know, what should I do? And in talking with the counselors with the MBA programs, um, you know, generally the, the, obviously they're trying to sell you to come into their program, but consistently they have said, I'm not sure what additional business education we would provide you that you haven't already had hands-on experience doing. Um, And so 90% of the time they've actually talked me out of going back and getting an MBA, though I will say that I wish I had those three initials behind my name. Um, As as I've gotten older and, and had to go out, uh, job hunting. Uh, I, I think sometimes my resume is passed over uh, just because I don't have those three initials and they don't take the time to go into my resume and actually find out what my work experience has been. So now you're CMO at Rehab Care Group. Um, kind of pick up the story there if you could for, for your journey. 
Sure. So I did a number of things when I was CMO for rehab care group that were totally outside my comfort zone. Um, during that period, this is like early 2000s, um, the RAC audit showed up in healthcare. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with RACs, if there's anyone out there unfamiliar with RACs, they're recovery audit contractors. And they originally started, I think, back in maybe the mid-early 80s with uh, governmental contracts with the military. And they're the ones that discovered the $900 toilet seats and the $200 hammers, et cetera. Uh, and eventually they came to medicine. Um, and so in this kind of rehab world, post-acute world, early 2000, the RAC audits were targeting, especially in California, there was a company out there, PRG Schultz, it was a RAC auditor, and they looked at all the post-acute inpatient rehab facility claims and denied them at a 99.9% rate, um, which was devastating to the company that I worked for. We went from having a, you know, uh, a black uh, um, return on our investment out there, we were never in the red, uh, to suddenly owing something like $90 million to the U.S. government. Wow. And it was, and it literally was almost overnight. And so it was all hands on deck uh, with uh, the senior management team. And I got put on the um, appeals and denials team to go and argue these cases. And at the time, we really felt like we needed to be in person. We need to have a physical presence in the administrative law judge courts uh, to explain the services we were providing for our patients and the care that was actually being delivered and have individual patient stories about our, the patients that we were improving their lives and how we were caring for those patients and, and really personalize it for the judges who heretofore had really not done a lot of this type of work. Uh, a lot of them were Social Security Administration judges, so they did have some healthcare background, but really not on the acute management of patients, uh, especially, you know, immediately after a hospitalization or immediately after some kind of devastating traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury or, you know, whatever, total knee replacement. Um, and so we really wanted to have somebody who could explain to a judge in terms that they could understand what was actually happening to our patients. And so I had the opportunity to defend three or 400 cases uh, across four administrative law judge courts in the United States before I believe 35 or 40 different judges. And that was a, a really kind of eye-opening uh, experience for me to really kind of see that, you know, sometimes you had judges that were great and actually took the time to kind of learn about healthcare and learn about what was going on with these patients. And other times you had judges who kind of didn't give a shit. I mean, they just, like, they'd show up and they, like, already had a preconceived notion that we were guilty of fraud uh, before we even opened our mouths. Um, so, you know, a lot, lot of learning that went on during that three-year period. What coming out of that, I, I know it's it that's a very unique perspective, and I've been subject to the rack audits through Medicare in the past. 
what would you, what is one thing that you learned that you would give advice to physicians when dealing with rack audits kind of from your experience there? Oh, you know, it's, it's, that's a good one. Um, hopefully you get a rack audit that if, if, if you're unfortunate enough to get a rack audit, hopefully you get a rack audit. That's a reasonable audit and they give you, you know, they're, they're only asking for say five or 10 cases and you're able to, you know, copy the charts and get them to them in a timely fashion. I know from having been on the other side, on the, on the rack audit side, that sometimes they, they inundate uh, providers knowing that they actually can't keep up with the workload of getting those, that information back. So they kind of stack the, the audit uh, against the provider. Um, but in instances where you're actually having to defend your cases, uh, I would say, um, you know, you, you, there are outsourced agencies that do do this work and do it well. And because they do it every day, they kind of know what to say to the, per, to the administrative law judge. So if you've got a ton of cases, like, you know, 50 plus cases or 100 plus cases, I'd probably encourage you to outsource the defense of those. But if you only have five or 10 cases, then it probably makes sense to do it internally and, and actually show up. And I think, first off, I think the, the, the best thing to do is to, you know, be respectful to the judge. Um, having been on the rack audit side, I've had a number of physicians who show up who are incredibly condescending to the judges and just so put out that they have to show up to this and that they're missing clinic and, you know, just really berate the judge. And that never goes over well. <laughs> no, that's not a good idea. It just doesn't sound good. It doesn't. And I, I, I just don't understand why physicians do that to themselves. Um, but they do. And the judge instantly picks up on those, you know, types of physicians. And they're not kind in return. I mean, they're, you, you just essentially blew your chance of, of winning that case out the door. Uh, so, you know, that, that first off, that's the easiest thing you can do is just be respectful to the judge, even if they're stupid and there are plenty of them out there. Don't get me wrong <laughs> that haven't done their homework and you really do have to sit down and explain the case to them and, and walk them through why from a clinical standpoint, you provided the services that you provided. Um, and then I think that the most important thing after being respectful is just, constantly focusing on medical necessity. Why is it that what you did for the patient, only you as a physician could do? That the, the decision-making around this particular medication combined with this particular surgery or service, that particular decision could only have been made by a physician. A nurse couldn't have done it. A PA couldn't have done it. You know, an NP couldn't have done it. You're the one that made that decision. And that's why your services were necessary. Um, that's, that's really important. And to, to speak to the other clinicians in the workforce and why they, couldn't, they didn't have the knowledge to make that decision or they didn't have the regulatory uh, capacity to you know, write a prescription or make that medical decision, um, that's, that's what you have to convey to the judge. Now, you mentioned during that that 
you have some experience on the other side of the coin. So, so take us forward. You're at rehab care group defending the rack audits, but then something happened and now you're on the other side. Yeah, this is where I get all your listeners to hate me suddenly. <laughs> if, if any of you liked me now for a brief moment, you're going to hate me. They'll come back around. We'll, we'll bring them back around. It's okay. I hope. So uh, during those three years when I was actually defending cases for the provider, uh, I spent a lot of time going around the country providing education uh, through different organizations, trying to get providers to say or, or to, to show them what they were doing was was not in their best interest in regards to uh, being audited. And some of those things were around physician documentation. I think one of the most consistent thing I saw among PM&R doctors were these four-line notes that would basically, it had the date, and then it would have, you know, PM&R progress note, and then it would say patient seen and evaluated, doing well, physical exam done, uh, continue current care and rehab, and then they sign their name, and then they bill a level two note. And I was like, there was no medical decision making in there that you distinguished what you actually did on that particular day as opposed to the day previous. And there's no indication that you actually spent the appropriate amount of time with the patient. And they would have a page of those. Like, I mean, it was really, it looked like they had a stamp and, and they just changed the date and, you know, just went down the page and, and made five stamps of a week's worth of service. And as I went around the country trying to educate providers on what they could be saying that would indicate what kind of medical decisions were being made and, and why the services of a PM&R physician were needed in those instances, it was frustrating because I didn't see any change you know, over the, the years of doing this. And there were even large national providers out there who knew that they were going to be audited and actually would keep 10% of their revenue uh, in a bank, uh, essentially. And when they got audited and they got denied, they just paid the money back to the government. And in those situations, it was a slap on the wrist because they basically got to hold that cash for 18 months or two years, interest-free, do what they needed to do with it from a capital perspective. If they were, you know, building new facilities or wanted money on their books for their investors uh, to demonstrate that they were making money. Um, and there was really no penalty for it. And that, that got frustrating to see. And so a rack auditor um, uh, approached me uh, a couple years later and uh, had, a, had the opportunity to go in and, and uh, do rack audits on the, the government side. And there is a lot of abuse out there that does occur. I, I would like to say that I was reasonable uh, and that we really tried to only focus on the abuse that was occurring out there. But I know that there are providers out there that, that don't like me because I think I was picking on them. Well, it sounds like some of those providers, though, just saw the rack audits and the lack of documentation as a cost of doing business and operated without real concern in that realm. They did. And, and uh, you know, especially with Medicare, it's so unfortunate how Medicare runs its business uh, that they don't have, you know, pre-authorization, uh, pre-approval for procedures and for uh, services that are rendered. Um, and that's how they kind of, you know, are able to process payments to physicians within two weeks. Um, that doesn't happen in the rest of the healthcare industry. 
and and also why I think the the for-profit world does a better job of controlling fraud than Medicare does. There's still a ton of Medicare fraud with, you know, dead patients getting wheelchairs and, you know, any, any you know, home health care services um, because there's, there's not that pre-approval process. So you were also telling me, though, you, you went through this, the, the, we'll call it the rack phase of your professional career. Uh, and then an opportunity came to you kind of sounds like kind of out of the blue that it was too good to pass up and you decided to start another company. So, yeah, the rack audit position uh, occurred at the same time that this was going on. So I worked for this was back when I worked with Rehab Care Group. We were looking as an organization to invest uh, and purchase a long term acute care uh, chain. We had to partner with a private equity firm in order to get the capital to do that. And the private equity firm, when they came in and looked at the books for Rehab Care Group, I was a huge line item on SGNA. And unfortunately, I had never had this perception. And I kind of wish the CFO that had been providing me all this training had had made me think about this, but I had never documented what my return on investment was for providing the the chief medical officer services that I did. And so it was it was hard when the private equity firm came in and said, hey, you know, Ken's this huge line item on your on your SGNA. And I it doesn't look like there's there's a reason for him to be here other than kind of being like a figurehead CMO. And so we, th- we think that he's one of the people that you should let go. So I, you know, I talked to the CEO of the company and the CEO was very apologetic that he was going to have to let me go. But internally, we'd been working on a, a business proposal uh, for a couple of years on employing physicians to work out in the post-acute world outside of inpatient rehab. So skilled nursing facilities, assisted living, uh, independent living, et cetera because we were having such a problem with rack audits and they had expanded to the skilled nursing facility world and we had no control over the physicians there on their documentation because they were usually independent practitioners uh, contracting with the skilled nursing facility. So the plan was to employ physicians to round in the post-acute and you know, provide them with education, provide them with templates, provide them um, with billing and collections and, and do a better job of uh, documenting the services that were being provided from a therapy standpoint. Rehab Care, as an organization, their legal weighed in on our business proposal and said, we don't want to own any more physicians. We feel like the liability for physicians rounding out in the skilled nursing facility is too big. Uh, so they put a, a squash on that. But the CEO still felt like it was a, a viable business that he wanted to see created. So he ended up saying, hey, Ken, you know, I apologize. I'm going to have to let you go, but I'm going to give you a severance. And I'm actually going to give you a really generous severance plan. And I expect you to use that additional money uh, to go out and start this company that we've been talking about internally. And I'll contract with you exclusively for the next two years. Uh, to give you business, and then you'll be on your own. I'm not asking for any equity. Uh, I just want you to go create this business. So, I mean, where where else and when else are you going to have the opportunity and someone provide you with a startup capital and a contract uh, to go start your own business that you own 100% of? 
I've never heard that story before. So, so when you ask that question, I know I've never seen that. It, but it sounds like it's another common theme. You you had a pinch point that needed to be addressed. You and so you developed a business that addressed it, and you know, take us through that process. Yeah. So that was that was a difficult uh, process. Um, but one that we, we scaled up and we, you know, they, they did provide contracts to us. I had to go find a partner who was going to recruit physicians for me. So we found a, um, <clears throat> a company that exclusively worked in the post-acute world recruiting physicians. And I had a relationship with him. I, I gave the, him the, the company that he ran. We, we gave them some equity that had... Um, you know, periodic earnout points to get more equity in the company. I went out and found a um, technology company that was going to build us some software for documentation. Back then, this is, you know, 2008, I believe it was, and there wasn't really a good physician documentation system that could be used in the post-acute world. I gave that company uh, some equity to, to help me develop that product. It also helped with billing and collections. Um, and then I contracted with a billing and collections company, and then we went out and started hiring physicians. Uh, you know, it was a typical startup. I, while I said I was the CEO when we first started out, I was the CEO of me. <laughs> uh, we had no employees. We had a lot of, you know, contracted entities that we were working with, a lot of partners, but really no employees. And the first contract that Rehab Care gave me, um, I provided the services in that situation until I could hire somebody. And that was our, our model uh, as we grew. I would um, find a contract, work in that position for a month or two until I could land a physician to work in that, and then I'd go on to the next, uh, next contract. So it did limit a little bit how fast we could grow, but at the same time, it gave us a consistent opportunity to grow because when you're building this kind of business, you're essentially trying to recreate a perfect storm every time of having a contract in a facility, of having a, phys a physician who wants to work in that facility, and making that all happen at the same time. And that's hard. Um, so the, the, the way I, I was able to accomplish that uh, over multiple times was to have me be willing to go in there and do the work. So, you know, like most startups, I'm the CEO and I'm taking trash out at night and, and just filling every single role there is. CEO and the janitor. Yep. It, it sounds like this, this too uh, relied on relationship building though, right? It did. It did. And it really, it relied on having a business plan that you could present to a skilled nursing facility that made them recognize the benefit uh, of having you on board. And that was, that was kind of a hard sell. but. Um, you know, we, we had contracts in Florida, um, Missouri, Nevada, and Texas. And, um, you know, built that company up over the course of six years um, and ended up finally contracting back to Texas. So it was interesting. You know, we had two providers, three providers in Florida. We had four or five providers in Missouri and a couple up in Nevada uh, and ended up letting all those go but adding many more physicians in uh, Texas um, because we, as we looked at the, the financial considerations for managing people out of state and the amount of travel that was required 
for business development, uh, it became obvious that it made more sense to have a very concentrated group of activity so that the, the business development person could drive where they needed to, uh, rather than having to fly between locations um, and, and having hospital systems that you contracted with rather than just individual hospitals. So by the time we um, exited in 2014, uh, we had 30 providers in the North Texas area, and I sold the company to uh, a regional uh, healthcare system here in Texas. So it sounds like, you know, it's, it's interesting as I'm interviewing entrepreneurs on their startup businesses, there are some common themes that, that roll through regardless of the industry or the specific startup. And it sounds like one of the common themes that I'm hearing in the end of your story there is the ability to pivot and yes. refocus the company based on the market conditions. Absolutely. Um, that's, that has probably been the most significant, uh, you know, takeaway, I guess, from my entire career uh, is I am often put in situations where what I thought was going to be the business plan to take us to an exit has to pivot midstream. Uh, I mean, uh, COVID is a perfect example of, of needing to pivot um, for so many providers as they move from in-person visits to, to telemedicine uh, and for other companies to figure out how to um, move their business to a different, different model. And if you could take us now to, to kind of today, we've, we're just a little bit over the 30 minutes, but I think it's fascinating. So let's keep going. But so you, you have an exit of your staffing company there. Um, next step for you. <laughs> the next step was to travel the world. My uh, daughter started a nonprofit when they were five and eight, and uh, they had been building water well, water projects around the world. And uh, so we spent eight months traveling around the world. Um, before we left, I had started another startup that I tried to percolate while I was gone. Um, and so when we came back, dove back into that startup, which was a, a data analytics uh, company. Um, what, with my work with uh, the regional healthcare system uh, as their system vice president for post-acute services, I began to uh, have access to just reams and reams, terabytes uh, of data on patient care and recognizing that we don't take advantage of it in the way that we could um, and wanted to explore that further. And that's what I came back to in 2017. I had uh, some outside funding to, to start this organization and um, unfortunately, that, that funding dried up in, in 19, and I had to figure out whether I wanted to continue to self-fund it, and I have continued to self-fund it. It's been a little bit painful, but uh, at the same time, got a, a paying job, which is good, and uh, went to work for United Healthcare in December, really kind of leveraging my entire experience and career uh, to to work for United because I think United at the at least at the chief medical officer level looks for people that have had a lot of experience in the insurance on the payer side and I didn't have a whole lot of experience on the payer side but um, when I was interviewing with the the plan CEO 
he was actually really looking for a salesperson uh, from a, a physician, someone to go out and build relationships, a relationship builder. I should, maybe I shouldn't say salesperson has such a negative connotation. I think of it positively, but, uh, uh, you know, it, he was looking for a relationship builder. And so out of a relatively large pool of candidates, I got picked. I was the only one that didn't have significant insurance experience, uh, because he wanted someone that was going to go out and press the flesh and talk to hospital CEOs and large IPAs and ACOs and, and just meet with, meet with people and, and build the, the UHC brand and uh, the UHC relationships with providers. We're talking to Ken Adams. You're listening to Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. We're going to take a quick break. And after the break, we're going to ask Ken what his top three tips for physicians looking for a non-clinical career are. Stay tuned. Learn more at Cheek and STEM, a message brought to you by the Ad Council. We're back with Ken Adams on Ask Me MD. So we've been talking to Ken today about his experience in non-clinical medicine. And as we do with most of our shows, we're going to end it asking Ken for his top three tips for physicians who may be looking for a non-clinical career. Ken, take it away. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, pitching that question. I think that you know, the, the first tip I would say is that in the current environment, if, if you want to stand out uh, with your resume, um, getting an MBA is helpful. Absolutely. I think that it moves you to a different stack, although that stack is beginning to become in undifferentiable. I don't know if that's a word or not. Uh, we'll take it. It's fine. Yeah. But there are a lot of CMOs out there I'm sorry, a lot of MDs out there that are going out and getting MBAs. And uh, there's there's a surprisingly larger number of pool of those types of physicians. So, you know, to differentiate yourself even further, um, having, you know, some type of business experience that you can point to that uh, gives you that um, ability to differentiate yourself, you know, being able to say, hey, I ran this organization and had a P&L and had this many direct reports, that's really significant because that that doesn't, um, you know, when, when you're interviewing someone, most physicians don't speak that way. Um, and you can, I guess you can even talk about your own business in, in, in that perspective uh, because I think most of us talk about our businesses as how many patients we cared for, et cetera. And I think the third thing would be finding a, a mentor out there in the physician kind of non-clinical role um, to, to guide you through things. And, you know, I would try to find someone that, that uh, had some good business acumen and has, has done it before um, and have them kind of guide you through it. So those would be my, my three tips, MBA, uh, get, get some relevant business experience and find yourself a good mentor. It's interesting you bring up those three. I think they're great points. The third one, finding a mentor, is is something we've actually heard from other entrepreneurs as well. So 
it's uh, it's interesting to hear you mention that. You know, I think that the mentor is really key because I we didn't we talked about all my successes, uh, and we could have spent probably two hours talking about all my failures. <laughs> also, I, very important though <laughs> is is the failures and what you take away from them, though. Exactly, and that that's where a mentor uh, can hopefully you know reduce the number of failures you have by half. Uh, making making a mistake, getting back on the horse, is incredibly valuable. Actually, when I hire people now, I talk to them and I ask them about their failures. Failures, because to me that is the big differentiator. Someone who's been had had repeated success after success might not actually know what makes them successful. It may just be luck. But the person who has several failures and gets back on and then is successful, they've I think they've figured it out. They have have been able to hone their experiences to figure out what their success keys are. Well, one of one of the other folks we uh, that I interviewed, um, a friend of mine, Eric Colstead. Eric developed a medical device. He's an emergency room physician. We talked about developing medical devices, and he brought up the exact same thing and made the point that physicians generally are very successful people. They've scored well in school. They've mm-hmm. they've they've you know gotten into medical school, gotten their college degrees, uh, find a, a lucrative job for the most part. And so it's difficult for physicians when they're rejected to actually take the rejection, learn from it and move on. And he used it in his example because I think he he had over 700 presentations for funding he had to put together before he actually found funding for his idea. So he took a lot of rejection before it actually worked out. I think that's a really good point because we we are kind of in our own echo chamber and once we get out into the real world, we don't get a whole lot of feedback that, that's meaningful. Um, and that's, you know, as you get a mentor, hopefully it's a, a mentor that's willing to give you some, some uh, potentially hard to hear feedback about how you present and how you show up in the world, uh, because that's really going to be key. We've been talking with Ken Adams, currently Chief Medical Officer of United Healthcare, but with quite the story of non-clinical career. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett. You've been listening to Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. Thanks for listening. Make it an awesome week. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world with Dr. DJ Verrett. If you have a question or an idea for a show, send us an email at questions at askmemdpodcast.com. 